Thank you so much, Brother Mitchell. God bless you tonight. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Luke in chapter number 24. Luke chapter number 24 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 5. Luke chapter number 24 in verse number 5. And, and as you're turning there, I would certainly like to say thank you so much to Fairhaven Baptist Church and, and of course, to Pastor Mitchell. And uh, it's always an encouragement, and it's always a blessing. Uh, the preachers that travel here tonight, they know what I'm about to say, that that there are times you travel and it's just a real burden. And then there are some churches where everything's just a real blessing. And, and, and there are places where you work and then sometimes you don't have to. And Fairhaven is one of those places where I leave a far more blessed than you ever could have been blessed in these services. And just to be around the staff is just so generous and gracious. And, and uh, then to be around students and, and, and then just to sit back and enjoy the music and the singing. And, and uh, in the other auditorium, especially in this auditorium, it's, it's just glorious. And, and you do a great job with the parts and the special music. And uh, it's just so encouraging and so refreshing uh, to be around that kind of atmosphere and that kind of heart for the Lord. And if I could just encourage you to join Brother Mitchell and say we're going to step out by faith and, and attempt great works for God. It seems to be that in a lot of Baptist churches, people contend to put it in neutral. Well, until Jesus comes, we better keep it in drive and go forward for him. And these are great, great days with great opportunities. We all know that God said it's going to get worse and worse. So we shouldn't be surprised at what comes next on the news. But in times like these, we have a precious and a great opportunity to say that step out by faith and trust God to do mighty works and great works that count for eternity. That God would use the men and the ladies in Fairhaven Baptist College uh, to leave this place one day and to impact a part of the world for Christ. What opportunities lie in this auditorium tonight as we stay close to the Lord and we stay close to the word of God and we live for him. God bless you as you go forward for Christ. Thank you again for being so gracious and kind to me in these days. You have the Bible to the book of Luke in chapter 24. Uh, I know we normally come to this chapter and we look at it through the eyes of the ladies who have come to the sepulcher that Sunday morning. But have you ever looked at this story through the eyes of the angels that are there? I mean, it really must have been quite a stunning thing for them as suddenly God has dispatched them to this sepulcher, which of course, of course, is empty that morning. And the angels have got to be looking at each other with their arms out saying, where are we? And what is this place? And what in the world is this? And what is this for? And can you see as the angels are, are, are looking at where the bodies would lie and looking at the shelves for the family members and, and then that big round stone that is in front of this thing. And, and as the angels are in the sepulcher, they must have been absolutely stunned. And they look at each other and say, what is this place? Because we don't have anything like this where we come from. They have never ever seen such a thing. And now they are standing in a sepulcher hardly able to believe what they're seeing. And if that wasn't bad enough, all of a sudden the impossible happens. And you read the text in the four accounts, it, it would seem that it was the crack of dawn and the sun barely begins to rise by the first light. These ladies have come to the sepulcher that morning. There, of course, is Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Mary the mother of Joseph. If you can keep all the Marys right, good for you, i got to tell you. Getting Marys right is about as hard as getting the Herods right. Good luck with that one, too. And, and there's Mary this and Mary that and Mary her and Mary there. And, and why the Marys have come with Joanna, the wife uh, of Chosen. And, of course, the select ladies have come that morning. 
And to their credit, they have made a very brave act. Why, they had to travel under the course of darkness. And, and darkness back then without light like we would have today is very dark indeed. It was believed that the demons rested at night in the cemeteries. So for these ladies to make a journey under darkness and then to go to the garden tomb and then to do what they are about to do, well, indeed they were courageous if nothing else. And yet as they come that morning, they're about ready to get an earful. The night before, as soon as the sun sets into the Mediterranean, these ladies have left their homes as Sabbath is over. They have gone and spent an enormous amount of money buying spices and perfumes. The Jews in that day never practiced an embalming. So, so these ladies have come to try to preserve the body as long as it could be preserved. Brother, you talk about wasting money. There's going to be nobody in that sepulcher for the ladies to see. Now the angels are absolutely stunned. They are in a place they never could have imagined. They are in a place that you will never find in heaven. And all of a sudden, these ladies have come to anoint the body of Jesus. You know, that Sunday morning, there are a lot of places where Jesus could be. But there was one place where he absolutely positively could not be. And that would be in that sepulcher. And the angels are stunned. You know, we know that the ladies are stunned and well, they would be and you would be and I would be. But the angels are shocked as well. And if you're able physically, could I invite you to stand together with me as we go to Luke chapter 24 and and in verse number 5, as they, the women, were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they, the angels, said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again and they remembered his words ladies what are you doing here what could possibly have possessed you to come here this morning exactly who or what do you think you're going to find inside this sepulcher don't you remember what Jesus said or aren't his words enough Father, help us tonight as we go to the mighty word of God. And I pray that you would speak to every man and lady and boy and girl in this room tonight. And may, Father, we be men and ladies of the book. May we believe the Bible is all we need. May we stand by this word. May we trust this word. And and more than a world that has everything but the Bible, may the word of God dominate our thinking and our lives. And then I pray for someone, perhaps in this room tonight, that does not have salvation according to the Bible. May this be the night they call upon the name of Christ and they're gloriously saved. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. And the Bible says they came to a sepulcher. No, it never ever calls this place a grave. It never, never calls it a tomb, but at least in my Bible, 32 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and for good measure, even once in the book of Acts, every single time my Bible speaks of where they laid Jesus, they put him in a sepulcher. Now, there's no other Bible quite like that, of course, but every single time. 
And that was fascinating to me. Now, there is one time that the place where Jesus is laid is called a tomb. It is called the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Had Joseph and his family been put to rest and had their bones lay in that place, well, then it certainly would have been a tomb. And it certainly would have been a grave. But every single time in our Bible tonight that it speaks about the place where they put the Lord Jesus Christ, every single time it calls it a sepulcher. Well, that caught my attention. So I dove a little deeper into that word, and it really is quite the stunning thing. Because in the language of the New Testament, the word that we have as sepulcher comes from a word that that gives us, in the language of the New Testament, the word remember, or the word memorial. And that says something awfully powerful, doesn't it? Because as you and I sit here tonight, around the world, religious people will take very expensive pilgrimages and they will go and visit the tombs of their prophets. After a Muslim goes to Mecca, I believe the second most important journey they take is to the tomb of the prophet Muhammad. I people involved in the communist religion, they've got to take a journey to see Lenin's tomb. Even those that are, if you let me call it this, pagan Christian religions, all across Europe, they have the bones of the prophets. They claim to have the bones of the apostles and and people take great pilgrimages at great expense so they can see the bones of the prophets in the tombs where they lay. But when it comes to Jesus, it's different. Because multiplied millions of people have spent multiplied billions of dollars and they have made their way to Jerusalem only to see a sepulcher that is empty. Because when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is like no other prophet, like no other religious leader, like no other man that ever lived inside the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ where once he he lay inside that sepulcher is nothing but air today. The Lord Jesus Christ walked away. That word sepulcher, every time you read it in the Bible, ought to say, no, this is not a resting place of the dead. This is not a place for bones. The sepulcher is a memorial. It is a place to remember what happened 2,000 years ago. And so now the ladies have come to a sepulcher. I, these ladies are courageous to be sure. I, these ladies are bold to be sure. And to say that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, that goes without saying. They have put their lives on the line. They have risked a lot. They have spent a lot for their love for Christ. But he's not going to be there. For all the places where Jesus can be, that's the one place that he cannot be. And now as the ladies come at the crack of dawn, the angels who must have been awfully stunned to be in this sepulcher, to be awfully stunned to be in such a place, they are even more shocked that these ladies have come. And I know we kind of like to soften this a little bit, and, and maybe we even never stop to consider it much, but, but that Sunday morning, these ladies were about to get an earful. And to be very honest, in Luke 24, they're not the only ones to get an earful. And the angels are absolutely shocked and said, what are you doing here? Why seek ye the living among the dead? And then they asked, don't you remember what he said when he was yet in Galilee? Don't you remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Had you listened to what Jesus had said, then you would know that he could not be here. 
For the record, when he was yet in Galilee in Luke 9.22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. When he was yet in Galilee in 9.44, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men. When he was yet in Galilee in Luke 18.31, the Bible tells us, he said to the twelve, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, shall be mocked and spitefully entreated, spitted upon, they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. So don't you remember what he said when he was yet in Galilee? When he was yet in Galilee, he said as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, a son of man, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When he was yet in Galilee, he took Peter, James, and John up into a mountain there they met Moses and Elijah. And the Bible tells us what they talked about. They talked about the events that would happen in Jerusalem. So now we don't have one, two. We have five occasions that we know of. And the book of John says that if everything Jesus did was written down, the world couldn't contain the volume. So if tonight in our record, when Jesus was yet in Galilee, he told them at least five times that he would rise again. How many times do you think he actually told them? No way to know. So what are you doing here this morning? Aren't his words enough? He said, well, aren't you just being a little harsh? And I, and I might be, except for one thing. That would be in Matthew chapter 28. Remember after Jesus had been placed inside that sepulcher, the religious establishment a.k.a. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the people that he lorded over, they went to the Romans and said, we've heard the rumor that he's going to walk away from that sepulcher, so make it as sure as you can. Excuse me. But if Caiaphas knew what Jesus said when he was yet in Galilee, what's wrong with these ladies? What are you doing here? What are you wasting your money on? What could possibly possess you to come here this morning? There are many places where Jesus can be. And this is the one place where he cannot be. Aren't his words enough? Well, needless to say, the ladies can't believe what they see. And they're going to run and they're going to go tell the disciples the whole story. And in verse number 11, hey, we just imagine the excitement. We just imagine these ladies telling the disciples uh, all that they have seen and what the angels have said. And, you know, there really is no reason even to read the verse, right? I, I mean, after all, we're talking about the apostles. And hey, we're talking about the 11 now. And we're talking about spiritual giants. I mean, we're talking about the guys that just a few nights earlier were having a deep theological discussion about which one of them was going to be the greatest. You know, move over Elijah, move over Abraham. Old Peter's here. And and we are talking about spiritual giants. So obviously when the ladies come and they say, kill these angels said he's risen, the disciples said, well, of course he did. I mean, what else could possibly happen? These giants of the faith certainly have it right, don't they? Not exactly. And in verse number 11, their words seem unto them as idle tales. You know, idle tales is even worse. Idle tales is how a doctor would describe somebody under anesthesia. 
Idle tales talks about a medical, it's a medical term. It talks about people that are incoherent and they are just mumbling and they are just babbling. In other words, the disciples are looking at these ladies and saying, you're crazy. You're crazy. These ladies have come telling the most obvious story in world history. If there is one story that is absolutely pure, if there is one thing that absolutely has to come to pass, it is the fact that Jesus, well, who would think? He's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And now the ladies come with the most obvious statement in world history that exactly like he told us one, two, three, four, at least five times, Jesus did what he said. And the disciples look at him and says, you're crazy. Well, needless to say, Peter's going to check it out for himself and know from the book of John that they were in a race, the two of them to go. And verse 12, then arose Peter and ran under the sepulcher and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves. Yeah, that must have been so impressive. The Lord Jesus didn't have to do what Lazarus did, who came walking out of the tomb with the grave clothes all over him. They didn't have to peel them off the Lord Jesus. He just went right through the linen cloth, just like he went right through that round hole. Just like the Lord Jesus went right through the wall to meet his disciples. They're not stopping him. And now there are the linen clothes laid like a human should be in them, but they are not. And the Bible tells us that he departed. And and notice the end of verse number 12, because right about here, you're expecting Peter to have a shouting fit. Right about here, you're expecting Peter to say, glory to God. He did what he said he was going to do. But instead, he departed wondering in himself. At that which was come to pass. This is going to turn into a theme in Luke chapter 24. The humans who are wandering in themselves are going to wind up in disaster. You say, well, instead of wandering in ourselves, what should we do? Open the Bible. While he was yet in Galilee, Jesus said, I will rise again, I will rise again, I will rise again, I will rise again, I will rise. And he opened up his Bible, he would have said, well, the most clear and obvious thing in world history just happened. There is no other possibility, there is no other alternative. I, Peter has to say, well, of course, he, Jesus kept his word. What else could possibly happen? But instead, it would seem that Peter's heart is his authority. And he walks away wondering himself what could have happened here. It goes from bad to worse. The Bible tells us as we make our way through Luke 24 and in verse number 15 that a man named Cleopas. And there's a second disciple that is with Cleopas. This is one of those beautiful things we talked about in chapel a bit today. You know, the, the, the scholars and the experts, they'll tell us where was Peter or, or Daniel in Daniel 3. Well, the same crowd comes along to explain who Cleopas' companion was. Uh, I've got a list of about 12 different possibilities. But one more time, the answer to the question, who was with Cleopas, is I don't know. However, I call that person the luckiest guy in the Bible. And I'll tell you why, because, you know, 10,000 years from now, we're going to be shaking our heads saying, there's Cleopas. And somebody was with Cleopas. And when Cleopas is getting hammered and Luke chapter 24 is being dealt with in heaven, there's somebody that's going to have a smile on face saying, I'm there, but my name's not there. Somebody's really lucky here. 
And whoever it is traveling with Cleopas, the Bible tells us they have left Jerusalem to go to Emmaus. You know, Emmaus, the Bible says, was a seven-mile journey. Now, now nobody's quite sure which Emmaus it was, where it was. There, there was an Emmaus then that would have been three and a half miles away. And the seven miles could be a round-trip journey, or maybe it isn't. Because it's really not important where Emmaus is. What is important is what happens. And as they are making their way to Emmaus... Cleopas and the luckiest guy in the Bible in verse number 15, it came to pass that while they communed together, and here's that word, and reasoned. So now here are the humans trusting their own minds and trusting their own hearts, and they are reasoning together about all the events that have happened. What are you doing? You know, Cleopas was a disciple. He's a good man. What are you doing, Cleopas? I mean, why have you left Jerusalem? This is the single greatest day in world history. This is the day, and before the sun sets tonight, somewhere in Jerusalem, you're going to see him. What in the world would possess you to leave Jerusalem and go to Emmaus? What are they thinking? And now the Bible explains it, that they reason. It's all about, well, here's what I think, and here's how I see it. And a little bit later, you know what else is their reasoning produced? Sad people. Well, of course it does. I mean, we're going to try to sit down and figure it all out. We're going to wind up discouraged and sad and defeated. If we're going to sit down to try to figure out Washington, we're going to shake our heads. you got to be kidding me. If we're going to try to figure out what's going on in this world and understand the news stories and understand how the reactions go, I mean, if we're going to try to figure it out with our own human reasoning, it's an absolute impossibility. But when we come to the mighty word God, the clarity of God's word changes everything. So here's Cleopas, you know, having this big discussion. And now in verse number 15, Jesus himself. This should fix it, right? Jesus himself. The Bible says he drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holden. That means God was holding their sight back that they should not know him. You say, doesn't it seem a little cruel that God would do that? Why would God hold sight back? And there's a reason. Because Cleopas and the other, whoever that lucky guy was, or it could have been a lady, his wife, whoever they were, they had made a choice to walk by sight and not by faith. And when we choose to walk by sight and not by faith, meaning trusting the word of God, then we are going to be shocked at how blinded we really are. So here they are, talking about all these events, and Jesus himself is with them. And in the next few verses through verse number 20, I don't know if you see this as humor. You know, I grew up, what can I tell you, halfway between New York and Boston. So where I'm from, we got a very different kind of sense of humor. So, you know, a little bit sarcastic, that kind of thing. And and I think this is hilarious. Because Jesus is walking with Cleopas, and Cleopas starts telling Jesus everything that happened over the last three days. You know what I want to see is the face of Jesus here. You know, is that right? And then what happened? Oh, that happened. And then what happened after that? They're telling Jesus everything he did when he was on the cross and for the next three days. Uh, that's just absolutely stunning to me. And the Lord Jesus evidently is listening to all this until we get to the end of verse 21. And Cleopas said, beside all this, today is, notice in your Bible, the third day. Don't you think something should have gone off? We've heard that before. 
the third day, the third day. Cleopas is actually quoting what Jesus said when he was yet in Galilee. But somehow the words don't register and somehow the Bible doesn't go from here to here. Somehow Cleopas doesn't put it together. He's actually quoting what Jesus said when he was yet in Galilee. This is the third day since these things were done. So what in the world are you doing going to Emmaus? And then in verse 22, yea, and certain women also of her company made us astonished. Which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision, uh, also a vision, a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. Of course he is. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found that even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Of course. Just exactly what Jesus said and he was yet in Galilee, it all happens. So Jesus is going to rebuke them. That's why, you know, I know we like to put on the kit gloves when it comes to the resurrection chapter, but there's a lot of hammering going on here. And the Lord Jesus is going to rebuke them, but I want you to catch with me tonight is that Jesus is not going to rebuke them because they rejected the experiences of the women. And the Lord Jesus is not going to rebuke them because they rejected what Peter and John saw. In fact, Jesus isn't even going to rebuke them because they rejected the empty sepulcher. Do you know what their problem is? The Bible says in verse number 25, he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart. Not very nice. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He didn't say what you need to do is turn around and go see the empty sepulcher for yourself. He didn't say what you need is a vision of angels. He didn't say you need a vision, you need an encounter, you need a dream, you need an experience. Uh, you need something new, you need something cool, you need something different. You need the latest technology, you need a new program, you need a new idea. He said what you need to do is go to the Bible. And when he said when you go to the Bible, look at the powerful words in verse number 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? That phrase, ought not, is the most powerful of ways to say what else could happen. What else could possibly be a story? There is no other conclusion. There is no other statement. Obviously, Jesus did exactly what the Bible said that he would do. And so how is Jesus going to fix the Cleopas problem? He doesn't say what you need to get is a new vision. He didn't say, you need to run and see the empty sepulcher. Because you know, there's a lot of people that have seen the empty sepulcher. Most of them still didn't leave. He didn't say, you need an experience. He didn't say, you need an encounter. He didn't say, you need signs and wonders. In verse number 27, beginning in Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and then more of the Bible. Gentlemen, what you need is the word of God. What you need is to believe what Jesus said when he was yet in Galilee. Yeah, all of these people, you know, in the Muslim world tonight, why there are all these people that are getting all these dreams and all these visions and they're getting saved. No, no, faith cometh by hearing and hearing doesn't come from dreams and visions and encounters. 
encounters and TV movies. Hearing comes when you get, a faith comes when you give a hearing the word of God. No, it is no other program, no other way. If they believe not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Jesus said, if you want to know how to go to heaven, he never said get a vision. He never said get a dream. He never said had an experience. He never says go to some auditorium where the faith healers do his thing. He didn't say you need signs and wonders. Jesus said, if you want to know how to go to heaven, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. The Bible, the Bible, then more of the Bible. And the word of God tells us the answer to Cleopas and his buddy is not more visions. It is more Bible. Well, needless to say, they do a U-turn in verse number 30. For it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he, Jesus, took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. Their eyes were open. He knew them and he vanished out of their sight. They are about ready to return to Jerusalem. But before they go, they're going to tell us in the word of God what changed their lives. You know, they certainly got a lot to report on here, don't they? I mean, they could say, well, Jesus sat down with us and talked with us. Or, or we watched Jesus break bed. Or we watched Jesus vanish out of our sights. Those are some pretty impressive encounters. But look what they say in 32. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? And while he opened to us the scriptures. The Bible, the Bible, the mighty word of God. No, the thing that changes Cleopas is not the fact that they had a great meal. It's not the fact they had a great experience. It's not the fact they saw something no one else has seen. They are not walking by sight now. They have heard Jesus open the Bible and declare unto them the scripture. Their hearts did not burn from their experiences or their encounters. Their heart burned when the word of God found its way into their soul. So now they return to Jerusalem. And the Bible says two at the most three witnesses. You know, in a real big case, you need three witnesses. Well, we've blown that one right out of the water. I mean, there's Mary this, Mary that, Mary her, Mary the mother of Joseph, Mary the mother of James, Mary Magdalene. There's Joanna, there's James, there's John, there's Peter, there's Cleopas and whoever was with him. We've got a lot more than two or three. And they come back with their report. And of course, by now, the disciples, I'm sure, are ready to believe. And and yet in verse number 36, it's just going to take one more thing. And for all the experiences now and all the visions and all the angels and all the amazing stories, in verse 36, as they thus spoke, Jesus himself. <laughs> That's going to fix it now. They're looking at not just Jesus, Jesus himself. Not a vision of Jesus, not a ghost of Jesus. Jesus himself stand in the midst of them. And he gives the classic Jewish greeting, peace be unto you. And in verse number 37, well, of course, they all broke out into a song. He lives, he lives, Christ. Not exactly. Instead, they were terrified. And if that weren't enough, they were affrighted. Affrighted is terrified on steroids. And the Bible tells us, They supposed they had seen a spirit. Excuse me. How come Caiaphas understands? How come everybody else seems to figure it out? But the child of God thinks that with Jesus himself standing in front of them, having accomplished the most obvious thing in world history, and he prophesied again and again, and it's in the Old Testament as well. Three days later, Jesus kept his word and rose again, and now they think they're looking at a ghost. 
So in verse number 39, will this fix it? Behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself, handle me and seat. Will that fix the problem? No, that doesn't do. Well, well, in verse number 41, he said to them, have you any meat? And I happen to love this. It says he gave them a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. You might want to check your Bible. You know, modern Bibles erase the word honeycomb. They get rid of it. I don't know why, but they do. They say whatever you want. But brother, I like a Bible where you get to eat dessert. You know, I mean, every time you turn around, there's one more reason to love our King James Bible. Every single time. I got to tell you, and if that's the only one, that'd be enough for me. Give me a Bible where you get the honeycomb right along with the broiled fish. And the Bible says that right in front of him, Jesus ate it in verse 43. He did eat before. Isn't this going to do it? Because, you know, Casper doesn't walk around saying, handle me and see. And he certainly doesn't eat dinner. Here's the Lord Jesus saying, come on, shake my hand. A little later, he'd say, okay, Thomas, take your hand. Stick it into my side. Come on, put your hand right here in the print of the nail. Come on, Thomas, go ahead. You can handle me. You can touch me. I'm not afraid. Come on. Hey, if that's not enough, let me have some dinner. And he's right in front of them. And you would think by now, everybody would be on their knees. And they're terrified. How's he going to fix the problem? Can you just from Jesus' point of view here, you know, he never gets discouraged. But if it was you or me, can you imagine how frustrated we would be? For three years, I've spent every day with these disciples. I have taught them everything. I mean, I counted 81 lessons. There are probably more the way you would count them. And, and no matter what, I mean, it's lesson after lesson. He pours his life into them. He tells them again and again that he's going to rise again. And now when it all happens, it's the single greatest day, the day of joy, the day of victory, the day of glory. Every single one of them are sitting there quaking and shaking, wondering what happened. So how's Jesus going to fix the problem? I know, he, he's going to go, you know what he's going to do, Brother Mitchell? He's going to go to the next minister's ideas conference. Yeah, that'll fix it. Well, let's just get a new idea on how we can help people here. I mean, I, I wonder what he's going to do. You think that maybe Jesus is going to, oh, I don't know, get some cool new technology that will really impress them. You know, maybe Jesus needs to find a different blogger, a different author, a different writer, a different TV preacher. Hey, maybe somebody's just a little more popular. Maybe somebody needs to do a new podcast, you think? So how is Jesus, after three years on Resurrection Day, these people are shaking and how's he going to fix the problem? And in verse number 44, he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, not that they might get something new and cool and different and brand, but he said that they might understand the scriptures. And how did he do this? The Bible says in verse 46, he said unto them, thus it is written, that classic statement, It was written many years ago, and it stands today exactly as it was written then. It is one of the great statements of the preservation of the Bible and all the Word of God. As Moses wrote it, it stands today. As David penned it, it stands today. As the Old Testament prophets wrote it, it stands today. As John did it on the island of Patmos, it stands today. As it was written then, so it is written even now. 
the Lord Jesus took him to the Bible. He didn't say you need a new vision. He didn't say you need a new visit. He didn't say you need a new encounter. He didn't say you need this, that, or the other thing. He said, what you need is the Bible. Then you need more Bible. Then you need more Bible. Aren't his words enough? There's so many defeated Christians. Show me somebody defeated. I'll show you somebody who doesn't get up in the morning and run to the word of God. You're going to run to Fox News. Then you're going to be discouraged. You're going to run to... It's going to even be worse than that. I mean, if you're going to go to this world and its philosophies, you're going to live in fear. You're going to live in panic. You're never going to know which way to go. But the strongest Christian in this building tonight at Fairhaven Baptist Church is that man or that lady that every single day runs to their Bible and they live in the scriptures they live in the word of God. If you want to know how to go to heaven, Jesus said, read this book. It's fascinating because most people would say, well, I want to go to heaven. I better go to church. That's not what Jesus said. Well, I want to go to heaven. You know, I need a vision or a dream. Nope. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you want to know how to go to heaven, search the scriptures. He said, well, I, I need somebody to guide me. You know, if you were to walk up to Pastor Mitchell and say, is there somebody that could guide me in the Bible to know how I can go to heaven? I, I got to tell you, there, there's nothing to thrill his heart more than that. The Bible, the Bible. The answer is more of the Bible. They are in trouble because they did not believe the words that he spake when he was yet in Galilee. So the answer is... Give them more of the word of God. You know, this is an awfully heartening place to come to, isn't it? I mean, this is victory chapter. And what starts out with Jesus is not here, he is risen, turns into don't you believe him and don't you believe him and Cleopas, what are you doing going to Emmaus? And to the 11 disciples, what's your problem? And to everybody else, after all the preaching, after all the miracles, after all the evidence, after all that Jesus had done, now he did exactly what he had said he was going to do. And you come to the end of John chapter 21 and you shake your head and say, is there anybody? Isn't there Anybody who actually believed what he said. And there was one. I think you can only find one, but there was one. A few nights before Calvary, Jesus has an invitation to dinner. In the house of a man named Simon. In the Bible, he is called Simon the leper. I think we could also know him as Simon the former leper, do you think? And of course, of course, as they get into the dinner, Martha served. Of course she did. And I know, you know, it's kind of everybody was on Martha. I never do. And I know Mary chose the better thing, but if you're going to spend your life serving the Lord, that's a pretty good thing. And if you're going to hammer Martha, go ahead, but just don't do it with your mouth full. That's what I say. So here's Martha serving, and where's Mary? At the feet of Jesus. A little earlier in the New Testament, on another occasion, she's at the feet of Jesus. And what do you suppose she's doing there? Do you know what it says? It says... She is listening to his word. So now on this occasion, a few days before Calvary, Mary takes a pound of ointment, of ointment of spikenard, incredibly precious, the Bible says, incredibly costly. Uh, and our, if we run the numbers, give or take a bit, it's like a $50,000 bottle of perfume. She breaks a neck. You use this one time, a very important alabaster box, pours it on the feet and then the head of Jesus. And, and even more than her lavish gift, even more than that expensive perfume, she really humiliates and disgraces herself by drying the feet of Jesus with her hair. Our American culture cannot appreciate how disrespectful, how, how Mary humiliates herself. Well, here's Judas. 
Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the pure? Really? You know, the Bible shines the light on that sorry rat, doesn't it? He couldn't care less about the poor. He was a thief and he had the bag. All he wanted was the money that that perfume was worth. So while we would expect no less from a hell-bound sinner like Judas, what we wouldn't expect is the rest of the disciples. And they join Judas and they pipe in and say, yeah, why was not this ointment sold? And that's when the Lord Jesus steps up and it's classic. And I mean, he's from every direction. Let her alone. She had done what she could. The Lord Jesus, if you combine all the accounts, builds an incredible defense for Mary. And when he said and done, he said, what this woman has done is going to stand for a memorial through the ages. And then he explains why. She had done it for my burial. You know, for all of the Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Joe's Mary, for all the Marys that come that Sunday morning, there's one Mary conspicuous by her absence. Mary of Bethany never goes. And you know why she never went? Because when she was sitting at his feet, she was listening to his word. And she knew what Jesus said when he was yet in Galilee. After three days, I'm going to rise again. I don't think you'll find anybody else in the Bible who actually believed that Jesus would do what he said he would do. But Mary of Bethany did. $50,000 later, we all know she believed what he said when he was in Galilee. Aren't his words enough? In a world of religion that says we need the latest, the coolest, the newest, we need bloggers, writers, TV preachers, radio people, we need this lady, that guy. Uh, A world that says we need new ideas, new philosophies, new thinking. A world that says, a world of religion that says, no, 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 we need visions and dreams and we need encounters and experiences. Somewhere there just needs to be an old-fashioned independent Baptist church where men and ladies and young people say, for me, the Bible is enough. I do not need Pastor Mitchell to stand up and play a game of entertainment on Sunday. I do not need the choir to come up with the coolest, newest, latest tunes. Uh, We don't need to rock and roll, and we don't need to play the rest of the games. But what I need is for my pastor to open up this book and declare the words of God. I need the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and more Bible. Are his words enough? You're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it unless it's our habit to get out of bed in the morning and run and flee to the word of God. If you're here without Christ as your savior, you need to go to the Bible and see how the Bible says you can have eternal life. Aren't his words enough? Does it have to be something new or different? Does it have to be something else? When he was yet in Galilee, he told you that he would rise again the third day. Aren't his words enough? I think I've been at Fairhaven Baptist Church long enough to know that in this church... You believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And Fairhaven Baptist Church believes that the Bible is the preserved word of God. And you believe that the Bible is a perfect word of God. And you believe that the Bible is the complete word of God. But is the Bible enough? Is it enough? Or you need something else, someone else. Is the Bible enough? Because those disciples aren't going to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature until the Bible is enough. How are you doing with your Bible tonight?
Maybe there's some Christians in this building need to get on their knees and say, it's time for me to blow some dust off my Bible, put it in my life, read it, study it, hide it in my heart. Time to build my home, time to build my family, time to build my business, time to build our church on what the Bible says. Because for a world that needs everything else, Luke 24 has got a question for you and me. Is the Bible enough?